Hi, everybody. How are you tonight? Good to see you. Welcome. Glad you could make it tonight. Those of you in Appleton and Stevens Point online, welcome, everyone. Glad you're with us tonight. Uh, again, my name is Joe Greer. I'm on the pastoral staff here. For those of you who may not have heard me last week, I'm back this week. We're going to continue our study uh, on uh, some of the, world re- the primary world religions and some of the false uh, uh, religious sects in the United States. And for clarification, again, because you go to this church and you listen to the senior pastor at our church, we are talking about S-E-C-T-S, not S-E-X. So we'll leave the S-E-X part to Pastor Mark. I couldn't speak about that, <laughs> but, but he's very good at it. For me, I can speak about S-E-C-T-S, sex, and so when I use that word tonight, now you know what I mean. It's good to see you, everybody. Glad you're here. So um, just kind of, a, uh, just a little bit of a review. The first, oh, about five or ten minutes tonight, we're going to just kind of go review what we saw last week, what we talked about last week, and then... Uh, uh, go further into the study uh, regarding the psychology of those people who are involved in the, in the, in the uh, false sects in the United States. So, uh, regarding the language problem, last week we talked about the language problem that we encounter when we talk with someone, say, who's in the Mormons or in the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, if you get in a, ca- a conversation with a sect member, uh, these are some basic things that you always want to keep in mind. First of all, try to direct the conversation to the definition of terminology. We saw that terminology is everything for these people. The problem is that what they say using our words and what they mean using our words and what we mean by using our words are two completely different things. So we've got to direct the conversation to the definition of terminology. In other words, I have to get that person to define to me, what do you mean by salvation? Next, the sect member must be directed back to the definition of these terms, and by what authority does he do so? Does he have a scholastic theological basis for the definitions that he is using? Again, most sect members have no theological basis for what they're saying because they don't have much of a theology at all. Next, I have to compare his definition within the context of the surrounding verses from which he is quoting. And that's given the fact that he's using your Bible. If he's using his Bible and he's quoting in context, that's not going to do you any good. But if you, if you can get him to quote the, the verse and the meaning of that verse in the context of that verse, which is what we call biblical interpretation, that's the main tool we use is what is the context of what is being said here. If we can get them to do that, sometimes... Uh, we can prove our point that way because obviously people lift pieces of the Bible out and get them to mean whatever they want to mean just about any time. And that happens very frequently. So and then fi- next we have to try to get the person to define our Christian terms. What do you mean by Bible interpretation? What does he mean by orthodoxy, historic Christian orthodoxy? Uh, what do you mean, sir, by the words new birth? atonement, context, exegesis, eternal judgment. Make them define these terms. They should be familiar with these terms and obviously when they start to define them, they're not going to be giving much of an explanation because of the fact that their explanation of those terms is going to be quite different from your explanation and your understanding. But this is a must or you're not going to be able to carry on a conversation with a cult member. 
refuse to go further in that discussion if that person cannot or will not clearly, clearly define terminology. Next, try to lead the person to a review of the basics of the Christian faith and why they are important. Ask them, do you understand why it is important that you clearly define these terms in light of the Holy Scriptures? Do you understand why I'm asking you these questions? It's important to me. And then how do you expect me to carry on a conversation if our terms, even though we're using the same words, mean two completely different things? How can we have an intelligent conversation that way? Help that person understand that. If they're just going to blow it off and ignore it, then obviously you have hit the wall with that. You're not going to be able to go any further in that conversation with them. And finally, if possible, share your own personal Christian testimony your salvation experience with that person and the importance of your having been saved not only from sin but also from the judgment of God that is to come. Okay, so we're just going to kind of go over a quick review of the semantics, that's the meaning of words that we talked about last week. First of all, the average sect member knows his own terminology thoroughly and you can be sure he has at least a historic knowledge of the Christian usage of that terminology. They compare the two and they help them understand their version of it, but also your version of it and uh, sometimes... They're really, really good at it, but they're, they're taught these things on purpose so that they can disarm the Christian inquisitor. Is there theref- and he is therefore prepared to discuss many areas of Christian theology. Sometimes he can do it very intelligently. Uh, next, the well-trained sect member will carefully avoid the definition of terms concerning these cardinal doctrines. That's why we have to make them do it. The, when, we, when we start talking about Trinity, we start talking about the deity of Jesus Christ, the atonement, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, uh, the process of salvation by grace, justification uh, from sin, and justification by faith, uh, this person will try to redefine the terms that we're using in this to actually fit into our framework. He will, in other words, he'll be using the same terms that we use uh, without saying what he really thinks about those terms. So he'll be actually appealing to our orthodoxy using our words with a completely different meaning, but he will try to fit them into the discussion. Uh, and so what, that is again why we have to force the person to define these terms explicitly. What do you specifically mean by that? The informed Christian also has to seek for a point of departure. What that means is you've got to understand that at some point what he means by a word and what you mean by a word are going to go in two different directions. Find that departure point and then see if they're willing to see the difference. If they're not willing to see the difference that they are departing way off of the orthodox Christian position, then again, discussion over. And then finally, we should try to be informed about the terminology of these major false sect systems in order to better understand how the person is thinking. And of course, that's going to take some reading, you know, and some research. So just be aware that it's out there. If you want to research it, if you can research it, please do so. But um, 
it, it would be good for you to, to understand the terminology and the things that they use. So that's a review on the semantics part. Uh, and we've covered a lot of information from the beginning. I'm just going to real quickly go over what we talked about last week as far as a brief review and uh, just the general stuff that we talked about. First, we saw that Jesus, Paul, Peter, and John taught a lot concerning false prophets and false teachers whose mission was to infiltrate the early church and then influence the minds of the early believers. They were as prevalent then as they are now. And so it was a big deal for these church fathers, these church leaders to address these issues because there were so many out there doing these kinds of things. Jesus and the early apostles did not waste time in denouncing and exposing any false teachers who tried to introduce themselves into the life of the local church. Theirs was a no wait and see approach. There was no waiting and seeing. If they heard about the guy or the woman who was trying to infiltrate the church with all kinds of weirdness, they did. They took swift action. They let the church know and they warned the church and said you need to get these people out from your midst. Do not fellowship with them, okay? And Jesus spoke about it in uh, Matthew seven fifteen. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves, and by their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. But a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And then I shared some of my personal experiences with false sects in the early years of my faith, uh, and how these uh, uh, these people devastated so many lives and the people that I was familiar with and friends of mine. We defined what a sect or cult is. Any religious group which differs significantly in some aspect as to belief or practice from, these, from those religious groups which are regarded as normative expressions of religion in our total culture. And a normative expression of religion in our culture, our Christian culture, uh, would be any of one of the, uh, the traditional denominations who are still preaching the gospel and who love God and, you know, whether it's a Baptist or a Protestant or whatever it might be, if, if, they, if, if they are counter to that, if they differ significantly to that, uh, that's, that's when we understand we may be dealing with a cult here. A cult might also be defined as a group of people gathered around a specific person or that person's interpretation of the Bible. And of course, with the Jehovah's Witnesses, they're all gathered around Charles Russell and his original interpretation of the scriptures and the New World Translation of the Bible that he created. And with the Mormons, we're talking about Joseph Smith and the fact that he was the founder of the Mormon church. And then, so these people today all are gathered around the teachings of one man. And then eventually, of course, they multiplied into many other leaders and teachers, but it all originated from that one root in each one of these cults. 
In addition to many of these sects teaching and foretelling a false unity of all churches, we also saw how false sects manipulate language and try to get a believer in Christ to accept that the sect is saying the same things that most Christians are saying. We kind of just went over that, the semantics thing. And in almost every case concerning every major Christian doctrine, the false sects are guilty of misinterpreting the Bible. I also emphasize that this material to those about to enter college, I mean, Those of you who may be listening online or at the other campuses or here tonight, if you're about to enter college or you're already in college, this is really important information if you're a believer in Christ because you are going to run into these cults and groups and sect members on every college university campus and that they are there and remember they are there not to listen to you and your opinions, they are there to recruit you and that is their one mission if they can get you into their group. Uh, One good way to prepare for that is to become familiar with what's in the Bible yourself. Also, we talked about the Christian having to be prepared to scale the language barrier that exists between the sects and the Christian faith, uh, that they are going to use the language the same as we do and will insist that they believe the same way we believe. They will always do that. It is a linguistic and communication tool they use in order to catch us off guard and confuse us. And it results in we are lowering our defenses sometimes and acknowledging that the person, oh, they can't be so bad. They're using the same words and terms I'm using, so they must be all right. And then finally, we learned that the best way to respond to a sect member is to make him or her define their terms regarding the nature of God, his omniscience, trinity, self-existence, uh, self-existence and those other uh, traits of God and the Christian faith that we talked about earlier. All right, so that's the review kind of of what we talked about last week. If you didn't catch what we were talking, uh, didn't catch my teaching last week. This week, the psychological structure of the cults. So we finished talking about the semantic or language structure. We also had to talk about the three major factors involved in understanding the psychological makeup of false sex. First of all, the individual's basic primitive, primitive outlook on the world. In other words... People who are prone, do we have, oh, do we have the scriptures coming on tonight when I'm, they haven't come on yet? The slides, are the slides working? They're supposed to be working. I have a feeling that there was a computer reboot in the back there. All right, so first of all, this is slide number 40, Eric, in case you're wondering. Uh, let's talk about the individual's primitive outlook on the world. How do they see the world? People who tend to look at the world as a threatening place are usually pretty, pretty easy prey for the cults. How do I look on the world? Is it, a, is it a threatening place or is it an accepting place? And then that segues into the, the second thing is whose authority is a person willing to accept in function of life matters. Some of these people submit all of the things, all of the functions, all of the activities of their life to one group and they allow themselves to get enslaved to that one group to the point where they can't make any decisions for themselves. I mean, just for example, you've got Jehovah's Witnesses who, you know, say, for example, uh, they're in a car accident and their kid's in the back seat bleeding to death. They will not allow that child to have a blood transfusion. Why? Well, because their sect tells them that blood transfusions are not permitted. And so people die. And it's very sad. 
So that kind of person looking at the outside world is threatened, he's afraid, he finds security in the one sect that he feels comfortable in and then he allows the teaching of that sect to begin to control every life decision and it can be very disastrous at times. And third, uh, the details of the structure of his living. In other words, this person is asking, how should I carry out my life? In what way will life be possible for me and agreeable to those who are in authority for me, over me? How much do I allow this structure to affect my day-to-day -day living? And as I said, they can, it can affect them in every detail of their life. And some of these cults, just some of them have communes. And if you're going to join the cult, you've got to go join their commune. And then everything, every activity of the day centers around what the rest of the people are doing in that commune. And it can go to extreme, extreme uh, craziness sometimes. And it's because people allow these cults to control their daily living. And it's all up here. It's a psychological problem that these cults appeal to in, in a person who has a, a weak outlook on the world, who sees the world as a threatening place. They're constantly afraid of what might happen to them on the outside. Therefore, they become easily manipulated. So how does this psychological structure of the cults affect their belief system? First of all, uh, they become very close-minded to any kind of teaching from the outside. The sect member relies on the organization itself or the leader to interpret the truth. And even if such interpretation is irrational and unconnected to actual truth, the person becomes isolated in his thinking. He cannot or is not permitted to carry on conversation with anyone who disagrees or who has a differing opinion. And any disruption to this line of thinking is considered a threat. So the first thing that happens, they become closed-minded. And they're taught to be closed-minded. Only listen to what we're teaching because those other people out there don't know what they're talking about. Next, that leads to antagonism on a personal level. The sect member perceives any well-meaning Christian, including members of his or her own family, as a bearer of a threatening message. Therefore, he develops a distrust toward the person and the person's message. I don't like you because I don't like what you're saying. Antagonism on a personal level. And that said, if you can penetrate that wall that they put up and break down that person's fear of you and develop a relationship, you have taken a huge first step towards helping that person to get in a conversation where they can begin to think rationally again and open up to discuss beliefs on a rational level. That's always the first step. Until we make that connection with a cult member, it's almost impossible to break through that person's psychological defenses. Three, uh, the sect member's training instills prejudice in him towards outsiders by describing outsiders as being influenced by negative forces. And these are being inculcated into their lives, into their minds all the time, all the time. They describe people on the outside as being influenced by self-deception. They say that we are ignorant. They say that we are prejudiced. And in many cases, they, that we are under the deception of the devil himself. Well, of course, that's going to scare someone. Psychologically, it's going to put fear in them, especially if they're uncertain about people who are out there on the outside. This is the tool that they use to get people to see it's us against them. If you know already that the sect member is disposed to prejudice toward you, it can actually help if you understand, and then you try and, if you understand, you engage in a conversation with the person, it'll help you understand where they're at 
from the get-go. And so a discerning Christian who gives every indication of being unprejudiced, reasonably learned, and possessed of a genuine love for the welfare of that sect member can have a devastating effect upon the conditioning apparatus of any false sect system. And understand next that this person has a very strong emotional and mental connection, actually more like a bondage to his organization. If he is totally yielded to that leader or that teaching, he will have little ability to discern truth from error, light from darkness. They just, they get to a point where they're frozen and they can't discern the one from the other. And this also involves, like I said, a spiritual bondage. Uh, I'll just share one experience I had when I was coming out of that group that I was telling you about last week in Texas uh, in, in 1983, uh, as I was progressing toward my decision to leave that group, uh, I became friends with a pastor in town and we were f- on the telephone one day and he was talking to me about my decision and I was like, I'm, I'm about 99% sure I've got to leave. I just feel so bad and I feel so afraid and all this stuff and I was telling him all about what I was feeling. And after we got done talking, he said, let let me just pray with you. And so on the phone, he prayed and he began praying for God's grace and God's mercy. And then he began to take authority over the soul ties and the bondage that I was in to this cult leader or this, what wasn't really, I won't go into it, but this leader. And then, uh, and, but I was really, I mean, I was the guy's right hand man. So I was like, we were, we were friends, you know, I backed this guy for years and years. I couldn't think of, of, of abandoning him. And as he began praying and, and breaking these soul ties over me and binding the enemy that had held me for so long, I literally began to sob on the telephone, break down. I could hardly speak. I was crying, and I literally felt something leave me in those moments. And I believe Jesus Christ set me free from that tie that I had to that leader, and I was able to leave uh, uh, soon after that. So there is, a, there is a bondage that sets in there. It's very strong. It's very emotional. And for a person to leave that kind of tie behind you, from the outside, you're looking at it, and you're going, how can they stand it in there? How can they possibly continue in this thing? Well, it's, it's not all just rational. Much of it is irrational. And it goes back to the psychological structure of that person and the the way that they relate to the world and the security that they feel in that group. And finally, uh, psychologically speaking, let's talk about institutional dogmatism. Dogmatism is simply, if somebody's dogmatic, they're really, they force the rules, they play according to the rules, it's their set of rules or no rules, it's their way or the highway, so they're very legalistically oriented people. And institutions can become dogmatic like this, particularly these sects. There'll be a rigid intolerance for anyone on the outside with a belief that's different from their own. Any former or present changes in their doctrine or practice will typically be attributed to a revelation or from a supernatural source. And so you'll see these sects every once in a while, they'll go through their different, they'll go through theological changes or doctrinal changes on the inside. And then the leaders will come to the people and the leaders will announce to the people, we had a revelation from God, we're going to change how we stand in this or that. I mean, this happened with the Mormons not too long ago because they wouldn't allow an African-American person to, to, to be a part of a Mormon church. 
And all of a sudden, when opposition towards that stance uh, in their church was exercised against them, people started standing up against them in the, in, in the public and in the newspapers and the media. All of a sudden, the leaders got together and had a, had a little powwow, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit revealed to them that it was probably okay to have African Americans in their church. And they announced it to the world, you know, that, that kind of thing. And so that was their reasoning behind how they changed uh, their outlook on, on this. So, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. The institutional dogmatism within those groups is incredibly powerful, and it affects people in a very powerful way. And their excuse or their reasoning behind it and the way that they can pull this off is they go to the people and they say, you better accept this because if you don't, you're going to get in trouble with God because God's the one that showed us this new thing, this new revelation. So this is psychological influence. It is common among the false sects. And another description for what is happening there is institutional dogmatism. If you want to know more about it, read George Orwell's 1984, Big Brother is Watching. And uh, that, that's a, a fictional book that talks about the overrunning of the world by a world power who basically brainwashes everybody. <laughs> and uh, that'll give you a little insight into what we're talking about. Finally, the final uh, psychological step that they take is isolation. This is a major factor by the false cults in helping to cement their ideas into the hearts and minds of followers, and that is to isolate their followers from outside influence uh, and place them in opposition to all other manifestations of Christianity, even to promote a persecution complex, as in, you know, everyone is out to get us. So you better stay here and stay inside our walls. Isolate yourself from them because they're going to get us. It's classical psychological conditioning. Uh, an example is found in Jehovah Witnesses literature where people of faith outside of the Jehovah's Witness church are referred to with a generic blanket term called Christendom. So those of us that are here tonight, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, when they would refer to those of us in the Protestant church, they refer to us as Christendom, and the pastors within Christendom are referred to as clergy. In other words, uh, uh, in other words there are those in Christendom and their clergy, and then there's us. Separation, isolation, we're staying isolated from the rest of what we call Christendom. Here's an excerpt from Jehovah's Witness publication, and I'm reading uh, verbatim from this, and this is the attitude that they take towards members outside of their sect. In Christendom, meaning us, as surprising as it may seem to some, the false religious teachings create traditions and commands of men are both directly and indirectly responsible for the physical and spiritual miseries of the poor, notwithstanding Christendom's showy display of charity. Christendom's pretended interest in the poor is sheer hypocrisy. Oh, wicked Christendom, why have you forsaken God's clean worship? Why have you joined forces and become part of Satan's wicked organization that oppresses the people? Why have you failed to show concern for the poor as Jehovah commands? We must hate those outside of us, especially the pretenders in Christendom. In the truest sense, we must hate them. 
which is to regard with extreme and active aversion, to consider loathsome, odious, filthy, to detest. Surely any haters of God are not fit to live on his beautiful earth. How's that for a description of your walk with Jesus? You're not fit to walk on God's beautiful earth because you're not a part of them. Then they go further, the modern day Moabites. Uh, By the way, Moabites were some of the sworn enemies of Israel in the early days as Israel was in trying to settle Canaan. They were pagan people uh, and ruthless and brutal people. The modern day Moabites are the professing Christians whose words and actions are as far removed from Christianity and true worship of Jehovah as Moab was removed from true worship in the covenant of Jehovah. Okay, wow. Pretty strong, huh? You can see that if language like this is believed by enough people, enough times, it would do much to separate them psychologically from the rest of the church. That's the language they use to get their people isolated from us. The fear that it induces into the mind of a well-meaning new recruit into the Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, it's incredible. It is institutional intimidation. It appeals to the person's basic instinct to want to survive, to want to be a part of the world, and to want to please God. Because, of course, we are always wondering what's going to become of me when I die. It appeals to all of those fears in an insecure individual and draws them closer into the sect and isolates them further and further from the rest of us. The very same psychological manipulation is found in Mormonism, Christian science, and many others. It is this closed-mindedness. It is antagonism toward outsiders. It is prejudice toward outsiders and fear and accusations of outsiders being manipulated by Satan or ignorance or institutional dogmatism and finally isolating them from the rest of the people. So that's just kind of a background in the psychological makeup of the cults. And uh, we're going to go specifically now into probably one of the major cults in the United States right now. I've already been quoting some of their literature, the Jehovah's Witnesses. And we're going to go in the history and some of the details about how they got where they're at. First of all, the Jehovah's Witnesses were founded by a man named Charles Taze Russell uh, through his own publication, which was the Herald of the Morning in 1879 and later, now, and later was called the Watchtower. Now, The Watchtower prints 17.8 million copies per month in 106 languages, and it has a sister publication called Awake. That prints 15.6 million per month in 34 languages. He was born, Russell was, in Allegheny, Pennsylvania in 1852. His family was Presbyterian, but he left the Presbyterian church when he was 13, and he joined the Congregational Church. He eventually began questioning much of what he had been taught in these two traditional churches and began writing his own papers and his own editorials and created his own sect while he was still a teenager. And then finally, the Jehovah's Witnesses were incorporated in Pittsburgh in 1884 as Zion's Watchtower Tract Society. They moved to Brooklyn, New York, the headquarters, in 1908 and continued there until Russell's death in 1916. 
Russell never attended Bible school or seminary. He had no formal training in the ministry. He was challenged as to his scholastic background at one point. Uh, He sued a pastor who was passing out tracts about him. Uh, The pastor, the name was uh, uh, J.J. Ross. He was uh, living in Hamilton, Ontario in Canada and uh, passing out these leaflets uh, questioning Charles Russell's uh, doctrine and theology. And so Russell turned around when he heard about it and sued this guy for defamation. And so they go to court. Ross had written this pamphlet. Uh, the fa- it was called Some Facts about the self-styled pastor, uh, Charles T. Russell. And he exposed Russell's teaching uh, as the destructive doctrines of one man who is neither a scholar nor a theologian, anti-rational, anti-scientific, anti-biblical, anti-Christian, and a deplorable perversion of the gospel of God's dear son. Oh, this really got under Russell's collar. Okay, <laughs> it got under his collar. And so they go to court. And during the court hearing, uh, Charles Russell was cross-examined by J.J. Ross's lawyer, the attorney. Mr. Russell, do you know the Greek alphabet? Oh, yes, Russell said. Attorney, can you tell me the correct letters at the top of this page as you see them? Russell, well, some of them. I I might make a mistake on some of them. The attorney said, "Would, would you tell me the names of those Greek letters on top of the page 447 I have right here that I'm showing you in the Greek New Testament? Well, I don't know that I'd be able to. Attorney, you mean you can't tell what those letters are? Look at them. See if you know. My way, and then the attorney interrupted, are you familiar with the Greek language? And Russell replied, no. He couldn't even read the letters. This trial continued, and eventually the attorney was able to get Russell to admit under oath that he had no knowledge of Hebrew uh, and no knowledge of Greek, despite claiming the opposite at the beginning of the trial. He also finally admitted to not being an ordained minister. When he was asked if he was, he said yes at the beginning of the trial. Later on, uh, no, I'm not. And finally, to having obtained a divorce, which he had earlier denied. It was all public record, so we don't don't know what he was trying to hide, but he, he denied all that stuff during the trial, and then finally said, yeah, I I was divorced. Okay, so that's just a little insight into the man. The man. He was a real character. Theologically, he was a train wreck. He denied all of the doctrinal pillars of the Christian faith. The Trinity, the deity of Christ, the physical resurrection and return of Jesus, eternal punishment, the reality of hell, the eternal existence of the human soul, and the validity of the atonement of Christ. He denied all of it. Given that Russell had no training or education to back up his interpretation of Scripture, it is easy to see that he was in every way a spiritual and moral fraud. But the people couldn't see it. And then there was his successor, Joseph Rutherford, who led the Jehovah's Witnesses into the 1940s. 
He continued also as a prolific writer and preacher and authoritarian figure who denounced traditional Christianity as a racket and any spiritual opponent that came against him and his teaching as an enemy of God. So he wasn't really any different than Russell. So let's take a look real quick. We're going to just do a little, a quick comparison between the Jehovah's Witness doctrines and the Christian doctrines, a side-by-side comparison. This is where they stand on these basic elements of the Christian, of Christian doctrine. First of all, the Trinity. Where do they stand on the Trinity? Well, you know where we stand on the Trinity when we say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You understand from your training in the Christian faith that means the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. But here's what Charles Russell wrote about the Trinity. Satan is the originator of the Trinity doctrine, a complicated, freakish-looking, three-headed God. And then connected with this is their take on Jesus as the Word, as presented in John 1, 1 through 14, that he is a God a mighty God, the beginning of the creation of Jehovah, a God. But the scriptures are clear. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, not a God. He inserts this little article in there, the word a, uh, which is not there in the Greek, and the reason it's not there in his interpretation is because he didn't know how to read Greek. (laughs) He didn't know how to interpret the original Greek scriptures in the Bible, okay? He was with God in the beginning, says our scriptures, and through him, Jesus, all things were made. Without him, Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. The word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, Jesus' glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what our scriptures say about Jesus, but that's not what Russell said about him. And then we go further into the deity of Christ. He said, the true scriptures speak of God's son, the word, as a God. He is a mighty God, but not the almighty God who is Jehovah. He and, then, and later on he says, Jesus was the first and direct creation of Jehovah God. In other words, God the Father created Jesus the Son. That didn't happen, by the way, in case you're wondering. (laughs) Jesus was coexistent with the Father in the beginning. We'll see that in just a minute. What about his belief on the Holy Spirit? Well, here's what he says about our Holy Spirit. As for the Holy Spirit, the so-called third person of the Trinity, we have already seen that it is not a person, It is God's active force. The scriptures themselves unite to show that God's Holy Spirit is not a person, but is God's active force by which he accomplishes his purpose and executes his will. And of course, we understand the Holy Spirit is a person because he is God. Because of our belief in the Trinity. Charles Taze Russell does not believe that, never did. And the Jehovah's Witnesses to this day do not believe that. How about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? This is what he said. This firstborn from the dead was raised from the grave, not a human creature, but a spirit. So he says Jesus was raised from the dead, but it was all his spirit came out of the grave, not his body. 
Jehovah God raised him from the dead, not as a, a, a human son, but as a mighty, immortal spirit son. Fancy words for heresy. For 40 days after that, he materialized, as angels before him had done, to show himself alive to his disciples, thus comparing him and equating him to angels. Angels are spirits. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, not a spirit, but a risen human being from the dead. What about his belief regarding the return of Jesus Christ? Since no earthly men have ever seen the Father, neither will they see the glorified Son. It does not mean that he, Christ, is on the way or has promised to come. He has already arrived. He is here. <laughs> okay, which of course they mean in the Spirit. Okay, that was his interpretation of the second coming of Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Christ returned to the Jewish temple in 1914 and that he cleansed that temple over the next four years and that during that time the temple was cleansed on behalf of all the sinful uh, men that had ever lived on earth and that was the judgment of God and for Satan's organizations. Okay, so that four-year span, Jesus returned, went to the temple. Of course, what they don't say is that there was no temple in 1914. <laughs> and so we're left to scratching our heads going, hmm. And I, I tried doing research on that today. What temple does he mean? And there, there, nobody even knows what he meant by that. So I have to think, okay, so he returned spiritually. Nobody could see him in 1914 when he came back. So probably he came back to an invisible temple. I don't know. Okay, so uh, they reason, Jehovah's Witnesses reason that since Jesus did not rise physically from the dead, he will not return physically. With this in mind, they believe that Jesus has already returned, that he is now present. He is not coming as in the coming future. He is here now in his spirit. Okay, so that differs greatly from what Christians believe about the return of Jesus Christ. Next, what they believe about the existence of hell and eternal punishment. This is, these are the words of Charles Russell. Who is responsible for this God-defaming doctrine of a hell of torment? The promulgator of it is Satan himself. His purpose in introducing it has been to frighten the people away from studying the Bible and to make them hate God. And then he goes on, the doctrine of a burning hell where the wicked are tortured eternally after death cannot be true, mainly for four reasons. One, because it is wholly unscriptural. Number two, it is unreasonable. Three, it is contrary to God's love. And fourth, it is repugnant to justice. So, the errors in doctrine and interpretation just in Jehovah's Witnesses' literature would take us till the end of this year to go through and describe if we wanted to talk about it, just theirs. It is error on a massive scale. Instead of taking each of their doctrinal stances and putting it under the microscope, uh, we're going to take what we just read from Charles Russell and examine the major points and then try to find out for ourselves what the Word of God actually says about each one of these errors that they teach. 
It's important because we need to know where we stand, Christians. We need to know why we stand where we stand. And if you don't know where you stand, you're not going to be able to know how to talk to one of these people. And sometimes that can turn into either an uh, embarrassing situation or other kinds of trouble. So let's talk about what we believe about the Trinity. We believe that God exists as a Trinity in the creation. In other words, when the creation occurred, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all present there speaking the world into existence and the universe into existence. We know that the Father was there because of what it says in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. We know that the Son, Jesus Christ, was there because of what it says in Colossians 1.16. We'll get to that in a moment. And we know the Holy Spirit was there because of Job 26.13 and Psalms 104, verse 30. All of those verses very clear about the fact that the, the Trinity was present at the creation of the world. Uh, remember what the, J, the, the Jehovah's Witness literature says? Satan is the originator of the Trinity doctrine. It is a complicated, freakish-looking, three-headed God. Total disrespect to the Trinity. We understand also about the Trinity that all three persons of the Godhead were involved in the birth of Jesus Christ, who is the incarnation of God. And we find that in Luke 1.35. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. Okay, so there's one person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The angel speaking to Mary, the Most High, being the God, God the Father in heaven. And so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God, Jesus Christ. All three persons of the Trinity involved in the Annunciation that Jesus Christ was going to be born of Mary. We understand that all three persons of the Godhead were present at the baptism of Jesus Christ. We see this in Matthew 3, 16 and 17. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. So there's the Holy Spirit present at the baptism. There's Jesus himself, the Son of God, present at the baptism, being baptized. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son whom I love. This is the voice of the Father. With him I am well pleased. Of course it was the Father because he referred to Jesus as the Son. And so all three persons of the Trinity are there, present at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3. All three persons of the Trinity were active in the atonement or the sacrificial offering of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world. And it's found in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, the Holy Spirit, offered himself unblemished to God, the Father, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Again, all three persons of the Trinity mentioned in the redemption of mankind. All three persons were present at the resurrection. The Father, Acts 2.32, the Son, John 10.17, and the Holy Spirit, Romans 1.14. I'm not going to go into all of this. We'll be here all night. Our salvation is dependent also on the working of the three persons of the Trinity. 1 Peter 1, verse 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ 
and sprinkled with his blood. We also find in our scriptures that uh, the, they are responsible for the indwelling spirit in the believer. That is found in John chapter 14. All three persons of the Trinity involved in the Holy Spirit entering into my life as I become a believer. Uh, finally, what, let's talk about, and that's, that's just the Trinity. <laughs> now we talk about the deity of Jesus. The Jehovah's Witnesses say, the true scriptures speak of God's Son, the Word, as a God, small g. He is a mighty God, small g, but not the almighty God, who is Jehovah. Uh, from our scriptures, we understand that Jesus is Emmanuel, Hebrew for God with us, which is found in Matthew 1, and 23, where Matthew quotes from the messianic reference to Jesus found in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, meaning Jesus Christ. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us, God, capital G. All right? Again, in Isaiah, referring to the coming Messiah, the Messiah will be called Mighty God, according to Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, capital N, capital G, Everlasting Father, capital E, capital F, Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. We also understand from the word of God that the Messiah's origins are from of old, according to Micah 5.2 and Matthew 2.6, meaning when, when you read that phrase in the Bible, it means not just from the old days, it means from before time began. His, his coming to us is from of old, from before time began. In other words, existing in eternity with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. We understand from John chapter 1, 1, the word was God, not a God, but God, capital G. We understand from John eight fifty eight what Jesus said about himself. Jesus Christ is the I am. Jesus says to the, to the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. And of course, that is the repetition of what God said of himself in Exodus three fourteen. When Moses is inquiring, who shall I say sent me to the Egyptians? And God says to him, you say, I am sent you. The Son of God is the exact representation of God's being. We find that in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. The Greek for representation is hypostasis or essence or being. He is the exact being, essence of God Almighty. Jesus, the Son. We find in Philippians 2.11, every knee shall bow to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Also found in Isaiah 45.23, direct tie between the Old and New Testament Messiah. He, the Son, Jesus Christ, is the true God and eternal life, 1 John 5.20. Okay, so that is the deity of Christ. Those are verses that that you can use anytime anybody ever challenges you about the deity of Jesus. Was he really God in human flesh? Yes, he was. These are the scriptures that make it very clear that he was not just a guy, that he was God in human flesh. Jesus was with the Father at creation and with the Father as the creator. He was at creation and he actually was with the Father 
the creator of the universe. You find that in John 17, 5, and again in Colossians 1, 15, where it says the Son of God, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created. Things in him, meaning Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Meaning Jesus Christ, very clear. Only deity can accomplish what is referred to here, and that is Jesus Christ. What about the Holy Spirit? What do they believe about the Holy Spirit? Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses say, as for the Holy Spirit, the so-called third person of the Trinity, we have already seen it is not, he uses the pronoun it, is not a person, but God's active force. Well, we understand from the scriptures that the Holy Spirit is a person. We know this because he can be lied to. He can be lied to. Uh, and Ananias and Sapphira did lie to the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 5. And if you read there, you discover what happened when they lied to him. You can't rely to an it. I mean, you can't lie to an it. You can't lie to a force. You can only lie to a person. The Holy Spirit speaks to people. He sends them on missions. We see that clearly in Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 21, where it's obvious that the Holy Spirit, it says so, it's written right there, sends Peter, sends Paul and his, uh, uh, his partners on missions to go here and there. And he says, I want you to go here, not there. A personality speaks those things. Then he reveals as a divine person, not simply a force. In John 14 and John 16, uh, Jesus said this of the Holy Spirit in John 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. Notice the pronouns Jesus is using here. It doesn't say the world cannot accept it because it neither sees it nor knows it. He says, but you know him, for he lives with you, and he, the Holy Spirit, will be in you. He is a person, not a force. Finally, uh, or not finally, but what about the resurrection of Jesus, of Jesus Christ? Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses say this, Jehovah God raised Jesus from the dead, not as a human son, but as a mighty, immortal spirit son. Okay, but we know that Jesus was more than just a spirit when he rose from the dead. How do we know that? Well, here's one account of the post-resurrection Jesus. He encounters Thomas, the disciple, in one of the upper rooms in Jerusalem. And uh, he, he invites Thomas, who is doubting whether Jesus really did rise from the dead, after the resurrection. He says to Thomas, and this is what it says in John 20, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. And Thomas knew right then because of the invitation, this is the real deal. He's really here. He is really standing in front of me physically risen from the dead. He had a physical, physical body. We also know that Jesus ate with his disciples after his resurrection. 
Luke 24, 36, Jesus chastises the disciples because of their unbelief. And they think they've seen a ghost. And he says, oh, I'm not a ghost. A ghost does not have flesh and bones. As you see, I have. He, he was trying to show the guys, no, you're not seeing a ghost. I'm the real deal here. I've really risen from the dead in my physical body. Look at here, touch, bones, flesh. It's the real thing. What, what do the Jehovah's Witnesses believe about the physical return of Jesus? Well, they say, since no earthly men have ever seen the Father, neither will they see the glorified Son. It does not mean that he, Christ, is on the way or has promised to come, but that he has already arrived and that he is here. Okay, so we believe in our scriptures that Jesus is coming, but he is not already here. Matthew 24, 26. So, and these are the words of Jesus to his disciples. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then will appear, not has appeared. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then, future tense, all peoples of the earth will, future tense, mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. In other words, when he comes back, it ain't going to be a secret and it's certainly not going to be invisible. We also understand his coming is a future event for which we wait patiently. We find that in 1 Timothy 6 and Titus 2. We also understand that his coming will be audible with shouts and trumpets sounding. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As I said, when he comes, <laughs> it's going to be a vision like no vision ever before. And it is going to be loud. You think our worship is loud on Sunday morning. You ain't heard loud yet. Of course, you're going to have redeemed ears, so you'll be able to handle it. <laughs> it says, the Bible says you and I will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and when he comes. So that's probably why he's got to change us, because it's going to be loud. <laughs> Jesus Christ will return as he left, we also understand. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 9 after he said this, speaking of Jesus, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going up when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them on earth. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? To which I would reply, what else are we going to do? <laughs> Did you see what we just saw? <laughs> and this same Jesus, the angel said, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go. He ascended into heaven in a physical transformed body. He will come back the same way. And you and I will see him, no question about it. What about the existence of hell and eternal punishment? As we read from the Jehovah's Witnesses, who is responsible for this God-defaming doctrine of a hell of torment? The promulgator of it is Satan himself. His purpose in introducing it has been to frighten the people away from studying the Bible and make them hate God. Well, all biblical words and references to hell in the New Testament and in the Old Testament 
uh, include these three. Sheol, which is Hebrew, Gehenna, which is Hebrew, and Hades, which is Greek. They are all interpreted by Jehovah's Witnesses. When you go into the JW Bible, the New World Translation, all three of the occasions of those words in the Jehovah's Witness Bible are translated, the grave. Yet in all three, the clear meaning in Scripture is that these are dwelling places meant for human souls after death. The reason these words appear in Scripture is to help us to understand we do not cease to exist after death. We continue to exist, just in a different place. We continue to live there uh, after the physical body passes away. They argue that. They say, no, 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 uh, that can't possibly be. Uh, Gehenna and Hades and Sheol all mean uh, place of the dead, place where you're buried and that's it and there's no more of you anymore. For Jehovah's Witnesses, the interpretation of the word death is extinction. So when you see the word death regarding physical death of a human being in the New Testament, in the New World Translation, they mean extinction. In other words, when you die, you're gone. Uh, This is never meant in Scripture when it says die. Uh, You see Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 18. In all of these passages, the word for hell is Gehenna. It is a place of eternal torment away from the presence of God. Matthew 10, 28 says this. These are the words of Jesus. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell, meaning never-ending punishment in hell. Other verses in Revelations that portray hell as an eternal torment not an annihilation, not an extinction, are found in the book of Revelations in three places. Revelations 14, 19, and 20. Uh, This is taken from 14. Revelations 14, a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath, they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. That's found in uh, Revelations 14.9. And then finally, in Luke chapter 16, uh, the parable, not a parable, the story of the rich man and the beggar Lazarus, where the rich man dies and he is uh, on the verge of hell and he looks across the chasm separating him from heaven and he sees the beggar, Lazarus, the beggar who had sat at his doorway day in and day out, who this rich man never bothered with and never gave him a, a bit of food or a, a, any money to buy food. He just despised him and rejected him and looked with contempt upon the, this poor beggar, Lazarus. And there's Lazarus on the heaven side in the, in the bosom of Abraham. And, and, and the rich man is looking over there and he's saying, Abraham, <laughs> Have mercy on me. Send Lazarus across the chasm to give me a drink of water. And Abraham's like, you got to be kidding. And then we find out and we discover this is not a parable. This is an actual story. This actually happens in eternity. And these are the words. This is a story, an account from the words of Jesus himself who described this incident happening in eternity. Very, very sad, very tragic, but exactly what's going on.
So we've come to 10 minutes to 8. And uh, so uh, we'll just, for those of you who are out there, we've got about five minutes for questions. Anything that you want to ask about? Uh, is my phone number on the uh, screen tonight, uh, Eric? It was there last week. Okay, my, yeah. Uh, yes, here's one. Somebody still had my... Oh, is it up there? Okay, cool. Um, all right, here we go. If you have a question, just text it to me. What would be the first question that you would ask a Jehovah's Witness? Uh, I would say the first question uh, uh, is, uh, you know, can you, before we start this conversation, can you please, are you, do you have the time to define your terminology to me as we go through this discussion? I need you to carefully and clearly explain to me what you mean by salvation, by eternal life, by resurrection. Do you, can you carefully explain to me what you believe about the Trinity, about Jesus, the Son of God? That would be the very first question you ask a Jehovah's Witness when you get in a conversation with them because if they're not willing to do that or they can't do that, I guarantee you the conversation's not going to go anywhere. So that would be the very first thing. Uh, according to Jehovah's Witnesses, why did they crucify Jesus since they think he never said he was God? Good question. Uh, they probably did that because they, they probably try to explain it away. I know that many sects and cults, like I said last week, explain away the crucifixion of Jesus by saying, well, it wasn't really Jesus up on the cross. It was a man who looked like Jesus or it was Jesus in his spiritual form manifesting like an angel on the cross and then as soon as he died and was carried away he desert whoops somebody's trying to call me but I gotta decline I'm sorry I gotta decline that one all right um, let's see where was the next one um, when I was approached last weekend by a Jehovah's Witness was asking, do I know salvation? What is their salvation definition? Um, we'll get into that next week because we, we are, I, I don't have time to just explain what they mean by salvation tonight, but we will get into that next week or at least the next time I teach. Who knows when that's going to be. I've had a husband and wife team knocking at my door roughly once a month. Yeah. Experience. Yeah. How should I invite these people in my house? Tell them I'm going to lock the door, and when the, before we're done, I'm going to turn them into Christians. God bless you, man. Good luck. <laughs> Ask them to put a bowl out in front of them. Say, please give me your cell phones now. Yeah. You can't call the cops. Um. No. I mean, just everything I'm telling you, these are things, that's why I'm teaching this, is to help equip you guys so that when this happens, which it will, and you want to have a conversation with some of these people, you've got a little ammunition. You know what I'm saying? You've got a little bit of stuff that, okay, this is what, really? They believe this? That kind of thing. So those are, those are just some of the reasons why I'm teaching what I'm teaching. Okay. Yeah, they're hoping you're not happy with your religion, is for sure. Um, 
this question, who is Jehovah? Well, to the Jehovah's Witness, Jehovah is Almighty God. We do use the term Jehovah in Christianity. Uh, it is from the Hebrew Yahweh, which was actually Y-H-W-H in the Hebrew language, which is an unpronounceable name, and that is because they revered Yahweh as a holy name and, and the Jews wouldn't use it out of respect and fear of him. But they, it's been transliterated into English as Jehovah. And so when we say Jehovah, we mean God Almighty. When they say Jehovah, they're saying he's the only one. There is no trinity. It's only God, Jehovah, no Son of God, no Holy Spirit God. Um, do they believe in sin? Well, they believe in sin, but how they take care of their sin is something that we're going to talk about next time, because how they take care of it in the atonement of Jesus, through the atonement, is completely different from anything that we believe in. And so we'll talk about that next time. But they do believe in sin. It's not whether they believe in it, they just believe that it, it, it's how they take care of it, how they address the problem. Do Jehovah's Witnesses use all the books of the Bible that we do? Yes, they do. It's just that you have to understand when you're picking up a Jehovah's Witness Bible, it's completely retranslated and reinterpreted. There's, there's nothing in there that's, when it comes to the basic doctrines of our faith, that is even close to what we have in a regular Christian NIV Bible or KJV Bible. You know, I've heard that. I didn't get into that in my studying uh, because that's like future stuff. And honestly, we're not even... I've heard that, yeah. But I, I don't know how to answer that question because I didn't study that far. But I've heard that before. Um, well, I would be asking them. That means if another true Christian is born, somebody in the 144 has got to get kicked out. Yeah. Oh. In this. Alright. She said that it's 144,000 that are going to go to heaven and the other, the rest of them are going to be here. The problem I have with that is they don't believe that, I, that the, the human soul continues to exist after death. Okay? So there's a real problem there in how they explain heaven. Okay, so does that just mean that only 144,000 actually continued to exist after they died and the rest of us are out of luck? You know, I, I, huh? In a way, yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. There you go. So you got your answer. I'm sorry for those of you online. You probably couldn't hear that. Too bad because I'm not going to repeat it. <laughs> Could you please provide the notes you discussed tonight? I couldn't flip through my Bible that fast. Yes, I can. If you want them, just get a hold of me, and I can email them to you. Um. 
uh, in the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Is this the same Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead? No. This is, that is a different Lazarus. There were two different Lazaruses. One in the Gospel of John and then there's one in the Gospel of Luke. Two different guys, two different situations. How do you explain that we are, are, that we are not a cult? We kind of talked about that last week. Um, there's actually a lot of people in Green Bay, Stevens Point, Appleton, who think that if you go to a church like this, you're in a cult. And we have people who used to go to Catholic church whose family members think now that they come here, they're coming to a cult. I talk to them almost every week, you know, and so you can't avoid it, you know. So how do you explain that we are not a cult? Well, you just tell people, just look into my eyes (laughs) and repeat after me. Okay, learning about... learning about these false prophets makes me angry towards them. How can we work through our anger and love them as they are also God's children? Well, first of all, you have to qualify what a child of God is. According to the New Testament, a child of God is not every person alive on the face of the earth. I know that there's a lot of people uh, in, in today's culture who they describe everybody on earth that's alive and breathing as a child of God. Well, according to the scriptures, not everybody's a child of God. A child of God is a person who's been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and been born again and who now is a son or a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of their sins. Okay, so that, in my opinion, and from the scriptures, the New Testament, is a child of God. Now, about these false prophets, it's very difficult to love them. Actually, the best thing to do is leave them alone. You know, I know know it makes us angry when we think about the deception these people are doing, but there's nothing you can really do about it, especially in the leadership. The leaders of these groups are so deceived, they are so deluded, and they are so arrogant, it's almost impossible to reach them. So you're not under any obligation to go become pals and and buddies with these people that are the leaders. That's not your responsibility. And as a matter of fact, uh, boy, I tell you what, Read through the New Testament and read Paul's language. Read Jude's language, John's language about what the, how they referred to these people, these false prophets. They spared no words regarding to They called them out for what they were. Wolves, uh, clouds without water, doomed for an eternal torment in hell. I mean, this is how they described these false teachers to the church. So there was like... These were not loving words. These were not caring words. And the teaching from the apostles to the church was, you stay away from these people. You don't even have them in your house. Stay away. You, you mind your own business. You stay with your own fellowship. Keep together with your people of faith and do it that way. So it, they, they didn't have much patience with these people. Uh, if God is everywhere and hell is somewhere, how can I not be in his presence? God is everywhere. And hell is somewhere. And you, if you're a Christian, you are in the presence of God. Um, and so uh, um, I'm not quite sure what you're trying to get at in that question. Maybe you can text me again. Um, is it okay to just hide or not answer the door <laughs> when they show up? Yes! It's okay. Take it from your pastor, one of your pastors. I never answer the door when those people come to the door. I don't have time for them. 
I won't talk to Mormons and I won't talk to Jehovah's Witnesses. I've got no time for it. If you want to do it, great. Okay? If you have, the reason why I'm sharing this is because many of you have friends and family and coworkers who are part of these cults. And so you've got to see them every day whether you like it or not. And so learn how to relate to them. Become friends with them. But more than that, learn what they really believe in spite of what they're telling you what they believe. Because those are two different things. Um, will you teach about Scientology? Uh, no, I don't have time. I just don't have time to talk about Scientology. But that is another very popular cult. Uh, again, if you guys got to leave, get your kids. It's after eight, so... Uh, I'm sorry I can't answer everybody's questions. We've run out of time. God bless you, and we'll see what happens next week. I don't know if I'm going to be here or not because Pastor Mark's going to be back. So we'll see what happens. To be continued.